Keep your church, O Lord, by your perpetual mercy. And because without you, the frailty of our nature causes us to fall. Keep us from all things hurtful and lead us to all things profitable for our salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever. Amen. Please be seated. I want to share with you a story of one of the early Christian saints. You know, sometimes I like to do this. I think sometimes they embody and embody the faith and inspire us in ways that uh, we don't get otherwise. And so this is a brief story of Bishop Polycarp of Smyrna. I know, that sounds like a weird name, right? But in Greek, poly means many, and it's many loves. So it's actually a much prettier name in Greek. Bishop Polycarp was Bishop of Smyrna, which is modern-day Izmir, Turkey. And he was personally discipled by the Apostle John and had a successful ministry converting the Gnostics, who were those that had embraced Greek philosophy but couldn't see how God could interfere. He served a long tenure in his old, in all the way to his old age. And when he was an old man as bishop, he had to be helped around from place to place because he could no longer walk. Polycarp is recorded as saying on the day of his death, 80, 80 and six years I have served him, that is Jesus, and he has done me no wrong. We don't know whether he was actually 86 when he was martyred or if he was actually older because sometimes they would uh, date that from when their conversion was. So he was at least 86 and so picture this old man being dragged out, barely able to stand, tied to a pyre, and burned alive. And when burning him alive didn't kill him, the emperor's soldiers thrust a spear into him to kill him. Polycarp was burned at the stake for his faith. On his farewell, he said, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I may share in the cup of Christ. There's a common theme in today's readings, none of which is wildly embraced or popular by our 21st century culture or maybe any culture, if we're honest. Those themes are what I'm going to call today the eye, the hammer, and the forge. The eye, the hammer, and the forge. The eye. God alone defines good and evil, and his eye pierces the most secret of places. The hammer. The word of God is power and will either destroy or conform. The forge. It's a necessary privilege for the follower of Jesus, the Christian, to suffer in his or her walk. It's a necessary privilege for the Christian to suffer in his or her walk. Real uplifters, right? 
let's dig into the passage. As we look at the eye, we begin by looking at the Old Testament, the Old Testament writings in the book of Isaiah. So if you have your Bibles or your scripture inserts, turn with me to Isaiah. We're looking at, I'm sorry, not Isaiah, Jeremiah. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 23. It can be also be found in the front of your insert there. Jeremiah 23, 23. What's going on in Jeremiah's time that he writes this? It's a big book. It covers a lot of time, a lot of history. And what's happening here is we're picking up in the middle of an indictment. Jeremiah is indicting God's people, first the leaders, and then the religious leaders, for their corruption and for their lack of faith. We, if we turn back just a page, and if you've got your Bibles open, you can look with me, to chapter 22, verse 17, Jeremiah Speaking for the Lord says to King Shalom, but your eyes and your heart are set only on dishonest gain, on shedding innocent blood, and on oppression and, and, and extortion, rather. But we read further in verse 26, God sees all. He says, I will hurl you and the mother who gave you birth into another country where neither of you were born, and there you will both die. You will never come back to the land as long that you long to return to. Worse than these kings, however, who are abusing their authority and oppressing the poor and, and, uh, extor and practicing extortion is his words to the religious leaders, to the prophets and the priests who are abusing their position and their power. That's today's Old Testament reading picks up in the middle of. But again, look with me at chapter 23, and instead of starting at verse 23, start at verse 1, because that gives us the context. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock, you have driv driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. We look further down in verse 11. Both prophet and priest, here's the indictment, are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil. And then we can skip down to verse 13. In the prophets of Samaria, I saw an unsavory thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people, Israel, astray. But the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and the inhabitants like Gomorrah. So first we have these religious leaders who are not shepherding God's people. We have these religious leaders who are godless and wicked. We have these religious leaders who speak in the name of other gods. And we have these religious leaders who are sexually immoral, don't confront evil, 
never call for repentance, and in fact endorse sexual sin. We're picking up in the middle of God's indictment here of these false shepherds in verse 23. Today's reading, what is God saying? Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Verse 24, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? The NIV translation translates that, am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord? When I was in Italy, I came across a great Christian image in Renaissance artwork. Maybe you've seen it before. I was visiting the Uvizi at the time in Florence and was struck that in many of those paintings, there's a triangle. And in the middle of the triangle is an eye. Have you ever seen that symbol before? There's a triangle, and in the middle of the triangle, there's an eye. And the eye is open. And the eye sees all things. It's a Christian symbol. It's called the eye of providence. It's the fact that God overlooks and pierces all things and sees things secret. Now it's true it's been used by other groups too, but it starts out as one of our own symbols and one of the most famous um, paintings of it is called The Dinner at Emmaus, painted in 1525 by Jacobo Pontimo, and I'm sure that Julia Laplaca can probably give you uh, some background on that as she has worked for the art museum. But it's a fascinating symbol because here is the eye floating above Jesus and, the, and Jesus presiding at the Last Supper on the road to Emmaus. Daniel chapter 2 verse 22 uh, deals with this too. It, it, Daniel writes, he reveals the deep and hidden things, that is God. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. There's no hiding from God, friends, is the first point. He sees everything. He knows everything. Into the deepest recesses of our hearts or the plans and schemes that we have. And that should be rightfully terrifying. Look at verse 24. Can a man hide himself in a secret place so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. The rest of the passage is all about those who claim to have revelation in God in their dreams. They claim to be prophets. They claim to have special knowledge of God. But the passage is a twofold warning. Number one, it teaches us to be wary of people who claim to speak for God through dreams or visions. We are to test such things against the word of God and in the counsel of the church. Number two, it's a sure sign of a false pastor or a modern day false priest or teacher if he never calls for repentance, if he dulls the hammer or mutes the hammer of God's word. So look out. Look at verse 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? The word of God is powerful. It is a hammer that either conforms or destroys. Don't think that this Old Testament fire and brimstone is just coming 
from Jeremiah either. God's word is incredibly powerful, and the image of the hammer doesn't change, but rather Jesus elaborates on it today in the gospel. Look with me at Luke 12, 49. What does Jesus say? I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. Full stop. Jesus adds the idea that fire is added to the hammer. While the hammer pounds and either destroys or conforms, the fire either consumes or refines. He speaks of this fire as a reference to the final judgment when even the closest of relationships will be divided by God. We know this because of the end time language that he uses in verse 54. Look at verse 54 with me. He said also to the crowds, when you see a, cr a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. Verse 56, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? What's Jesus saying? That if we paid as much attention to the spiritual realities as we do to the weather, we'd be in a lot better place. He speaks of this fire coming. And in, the case, in this case, Jesus, as the word on whom all things hold together and have their being, has been given the most deep vision into our hearts. He is given the vision from the eye to pierce, to see, to judge, to divide. Again, that should take us back a little bit. But notice in verse 56, Jesus makes the point that this division isn't something far off. This division isn't something that starts when he returns. What does he say? It starts now. It starts now. The good news for us, but not for Jesus at this point in the gospel, is that God has appointed someone who will take the judgment upon himself. Look at verse 50. I have a baptism, Jesus says, to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. What's Jesus talking about here? He's already been baptized. He's not talking about the baptism of water. But he uses the word baptism, which is a Greek word, baptismo, that means to be submerged or immersed, because he is about to be submerged and immersed in the most horrific pain in the most bitter betrayal, and in the worst death possible. Jesus' baptism in this passage that he's speaking of is on the cross. And that's not good news for him, which is why he's distressed. But it's great news for us, for whom the hammer would otherwise be coming. St. John Vianney says this, he says, nothing afflicts the heart of Jesus so much as to see all his sufferings of no avail to so many. 
Nothing afflicts the heart of Jesus so much as to see all his sufferings of no avail to so many. What's Jesus saying here? I've provided a way out. Won't you take it? I've provided a way outside of the hammer. I will take the beating. I will take the fire. Finally, the forge. It's a necessary privilege for a Christian to suffer in his or her walk. Again, that'll sell great books, right? I should write a top ten on that one. But what, but what is, what, 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 excuse me, what do we see here in the Hebrews passage? Why is it that the author of Hebrews urges us to press on? Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? What's the author of Hebrews saying? He's saying, number one, he's recognizing that it's difficult for us, and it's a struggle for us to fight with our old natures, that there's a battle going inside of us constantly between the old, fallen, sinful nature and the new nature given by the Holy Spirit. And that battle going on is a struggle because it's not just dealing with sin or evil out there. It's dealing with sin and evil in here. You see, as we prayed in that collect, in our frailty, we're bound to fall. We're utterly dependent upon Jesus. But the author of Hebrews also asks us to evaluate. What is he saying in this past verse? He says, are you fighting as hard against your sin as Jesus fought for you on his way to Calvary? Whoa. That takes the wind out of your sails. That's, that's convicting, isn't it? Do you really struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil as much as Jesus struggles against the Sanhedrin, Pontius Pilate, the Roman soldiers who take him to the cross? The author of Hebrews says, no, you don't. You don't. You haven't gone to the point of shedding blood. It's, you know, we don't know exactly what the Hebrews are, what the book of Hebrews is dealing with here, but, Paul, but the apostle here that's writing Hebrews is saying, you haven't gone to that length. So keep up the good faith. Don't grow faint-hearted. And then he gives the hope. Have you not forgotten, or have you forgotten that you're called sons, to which we can add daughters? of God? Have you forgotten that? The forge, pressing on. You see, it's not about earning your salvation here. That's not the point of the book of Hebrews. Your salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. What it is about is being hammered and conformed into a son or daughter of God, which is a different thing. 
right? It's something beyond. Our justified status before God is guaranteed by Jesus, but our character is continually changing, either becoming more Christ-like or less Christ-like. How do I know that the author is talking about this? Well, he quotes the book of Proverbs. Look with me as we look at verses 5 and 6 in Hebrews. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And here's the quote, and this quote's from Proverbs 3, 11, and 12 by the author of, the he- of Hebrews. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. It is for discipline that you have to endure. So whereas the hammer of God crushes those outside of Jesus, the hammer of God forges those found in Jesus. Forging, you know, is a metallurgical term And what happens with a forge? You heat up the piece of metal, you stick it in the forge, you crank up the air, it gets really hot and molten, and what? You take it out of the heat, you put it on the anvil, and you hammer it, and you hammer it, and you hammer it, and then you stick it into cold water, and then you put it back into the forge, you heat it up again, you stick it on the anvil, and you hammer it, and you hammer it, and you hammer it. And what does that hammering do scientifically? I had to look this up, but I'm sure my engineers know. It puts the grains of the steel in alignment with the design of the implement. And by putting the grain of the steel in alignment with the design of the implement, it makes it so much stronger. And it becomes more useful. It's how we make swords, right? How we make all sorts of things. The forge. It's a great image for what God does with those he loves. We're all going to deal with suffering. The question is, are we dealing with suffering with the view of the forge? Or are we running around complaining? Are we running around moping? Are we running around in despair? Are we running around saying, I'm overwhelmed, I'm overwhelmed, and we never turn to God? The suffering comes, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, it happens. What are we doing with our suffering? The author of Hebrews asks us. We're told that God's purpose is that it makes us better disciples. God's purpose is that we suffer so that we can be more like Jesus. And yet, we try to avoid suffering at all costs, don't we? The world will tell you that sin and being wicked is fun, and that indulgence will ultimately bring happiness. But the scriptures tell us that holiness is ultimately our good, and the author of Hebrews tells us that it is the mark of being God's son or daughter to suffer. And even if no one is persecuting you to suffer because you're suffering internally with your own nature. So today's readings hit subjects that we don't like to hear about. But it's true nonetheless that God does see everything. The eye of providence allows nothing to be done in secret. 
And whether you're a king, a priest, a worker, a student, God sees you and judges you in your thoughts, words, and actions. And he judges you against the word of his law. That's universal. His, his judgment is a hammer. It's a consuming fire. And it will either drive people into despair or will drive people to ask for his mercy. And for the Christian, it's the same. It either drives us to despair, which it ought not, or it drives us to better discipline. Number two, Jesus doesn't come to bring peace to this world. Put that on a bumper sticker and see how it goes. I come not to bring peace, but division. Why? Because Jesus comes to divide the sheep from the goats, the good from the evil. He guarantees in this passage that there will be awkwardness in that. That fathers will be among the goats and their children among the sheep. That mothers will be among the sheep and their children among the goats. That's the hard reality of this division. Those who are found outside of Christ, the hammer will come for, which is why it's so important that we preach Christ to everyone around us. Number three, God is a loving father and has adopted us as sons and daughters, for he permits suffering and uses it to strengthen us because of his goal for us is not to be just happy in this world, but happy in the next. So what do we take away from this? Number one, God doesn't play fast and loose with right and wrong. Avoid such people who think that way and write that way theologically. What he's declared is good is good. What he's declared is evil is evil, now and forever. God doesn't change his mind God doesn't conform to our culture. God doesn't conform to our personal wills, right? He's the all-seeing eye. The good news is that he does offer repentance. So anyone who teaches or preaches a weakening of morality or softens repentance is a false shepherd. Why? Because anyone that doesn't preach that we must repent cuts us off from salvation, cuts us off from the exit, away from the hammer. Do you see, it's not kind to not preach repentance. It's very cruel to tell people they don't need to repent. The word of God, whether his law or his word incarnate in Jesus, is that hammer and that fire. Jesus is the best friend and advocate for the person who has repented, and the brother for the person who's repented and follows him. And if we're honest, he's going to be the worst nightmare for the person who refuses to give up his sin or put off his old nature when he comes in majesty flanked by the angels. You won't want to be in his bad graces. He's the divider, the discriminator between chaff and grain. One's collected and refined, the other's burned. Are you a son or daughter who's repented and continues to live a life of repentance, throwing yourself on the merciful love of Jesus and the cross? Or, or are you softening the gospel and making excuse for yourself 
and for people around you. Our readings ask us that today. Finally, in this world we will have suffering. It's true. But the author of Hebrews reminds us that this suffering is used by God for our good. Do you see suffering that way in your own life? Let me put it another way, because I think sometimes we disconnect from suffering. Do you see the frustration or the pain or the agitation or the bad news in your life that way? Do you see that? Is God trying to refine you? Or does it bring you down? Does it cause you to draw nearer to God? Or does it cause you to go further from God? God wants you to be near. He wants you to be with, He wants to be with you in that refining. He wants to be with you in that suffering, in that frustration. Because ultimately, if you're with Him in it, you become holier. You become more Christ-like. So where is God in your suffering? And in closing, I just want to quote our opening saint, Saint Polycarp of Smyrna, who writes this. Let us therefore, without ceasing, hold fast by our hope and by the earnestness of righteousness, which is Christ Jesus, who took up our sins on his own body upon the tree, who did no sin. Neither was there guile found in his mouth, But for our sakes he endured all things that we might live in him. Let us, therefore, become imitators of his endurance. And if we should suffer for his name's sake, let us glorify him. For he gave this example to us in his own person, and we believed this. So says the old man taken to the stake. May the eye, the hammer... And the fire continually call us to repentance, faith, and enduring virtue. Amen.